Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Paget here and on this week's episode we're going to discover how to register a trademark with trademark attorney Marcela Dominguez. But before we dive into that, I do want to give a big shout out to FreshBooks who have sponsored this episode. For those not familiar, FreshBooks is a cloud-based accounting software that's been designed for creative professionals. It allows you to create branded invoices in seconds, easily organize your expenses, track time, export reports, and more. You can try it free for 30 days, just head to freshbooks.com forward slash logo geek and make sure to enter logo geek in the how did you hear about a section. So on this week's podcast, we're diving into the world of registering business names and logos. It's just over a year ago now that I recorded an episode with Gordon Firemark on the topic of trademark and copyright law. And I've been so surprised to see since then that I've recorded over 44 um, episodes. So it seems like the right time to dive further into the topic. When it comes to designing logos, one of the most important things designers must understand is that we're not designing in a bubble. You must be aware that there's a whole world out there where business names and logos are registered, owned and legally protected by individuals and businesses. Ignoring that fact could result in you unintentionally designing a logo that breaches an already established trademark and your client could get in some serious legal trouble which could leave you as the designer in a sticky situation too. So the more you understand about trademark law the better. So when Marcela Dominguez, who's a trademark attorney in El Paso, Texas, reached out as a potential guest, I felt it made sense to bring her on to dive into a a few further questions on the topic. In this episode, we discuss registering a business name and logo, how and when to use the registered R symbol, advice on creating contracts and more. So let's get into this. Here is the interview with Marcela Dominguez. So when it comes to business naming and designing logos, not everyone will be aware of the potential legal risks involved when creating something new. So as an opening question for you, Why and when would someone need to contact a lawyer for legal services? Well, that's a great question. And I think that if you're definitely going to be visiting a graphic design agency or a graphic designer to help you with your branding, then that branding agency or or logo designer should at the very least be recommending that you also Uh, seek the advice of a trademark attorney and not so much because you're going to jump on registering the trademark right away, but because you want to make sure that that design or that name or slogan that you guys have chosen is not in conflict with uh, anything else out there that already exists. Because if they have no clue that there's a conflict, then both you and them, mostly you as the client are going to be in deep trouble or hot water as you continue to use this mark in commerce going forward. And so just to avoid any issues, it's it's kind of like 
Um, you know those apps that tell you what the traffic is like or it's kind of like looking at a weather forecast just to see what you should wear for the day. It, it's kind of the same thing. You want to make sure that the freeway is clear, that um, that there's not going to be any trouble moving forward and that your journey is going to be as smooth as possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I actually just had a client that was um, close to going ahead and actually proceeding with their um, logo and they hadn't yet had their uh, name trademarked uh -huh. and thankfully thankfully just before I was about to kick off the project they realized that they couldn't register the 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 name that they asked me to work with so they've had to step back rethink the name and look at that registration process again because they would have wasted a lot of time and money because you know if in in that situation if i had started the project because the whole name and everything was change, changing obviously it would mean that i would have to start the whole process again so there's you know cost and time and stuff like that wasted if if you haven't um you know gone ahead and just double check that that name is available yes that's precisely right you're going to waste time you're going to waste money um and really, you could have avoided that waste of time and money and resources. So if you can avoid it, why wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I understand, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you would need to, to register both the company name and the logo separately. Is, is that correct? Yes. So that would mean that there are two applications. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I think it'd be worth going through each of these separately. So how would you go about registering that business name? Yeah. So, you know, registering a business name is just a matter of you choosing what the business name is going to be. And what's important to keep in mind is that this business name should not change. Uh, there should be no variation of it moving forward. So the name that you choose that you write down on that application is the name that you need to use moving forward. Um, and I think that's kind of the biggest take home point, because I think that down the line, some people want to add an S to it or an apostrophe S, or they want to add, um, I don't know, just some other, you know, sometimes they'll add CO for company or LTD for limited. And something as, as, Something that may be so insignificant to you actually is not insignificant. It is significant in that um, it could be a material change that precludes you from uh, pr from receiving protection uh, moving forward. So whatever you put down on the application, just use it like that moving forward. Sure. Okay. So, so does that include things such as limited? Uh, I, I quite frequently work with clients that have limited included in their registered business name um, so does that mean from um, a legal perspective that you should include limited in the logo too yeah so if they have included limited then i would definitely design the logo with the limited inside because that is what they've protected so going back to what i just said a couple of minutes ago the what you choose and what you put on paper in that application is how you should continue to use it without removing or changing a single thing, even if it yeah. means adding or removing limited. If you included limited from the get-go, then use it with limited in the logo as well. Yeah, okay, that clarifies what I thought. So what you register as, as a name, that should be exactly the same thing that's within that logo, and you shouldn't do it a different way from a legal perspective. Yeah, unless, unless you are planning on submitting a second application for a logo, and um, 
and you've protected your name with the limited and also protected it without the limited. Does that make sense? Got it. Yes, it does. That makes total sense. Totally understand. Yeah. Okay. Um, so on to the next part. So you've, you've registered that logo. Something I wanted to ask, because I've registered a business name before I've gone through this process myself, there's, there's all these different classes and, and you register in different locations. For listeners that aren't familiar with what that means, would you mind explaining what those classes are for and, and why you would have to register in each different location for that? Yeah, so this is probably one of the most important take-home points for the trademark application process, generally speaking. And that is, you have to be very precise about what identification you are selecting, because that is the category in which you are going to be protected. So let's say you are selling t-shirts and then you accidentally go and register in... uh, Uh, I don't know what would be a good example. Let's say you accidentally choose like restaurant services or something because you're a restaurant that's actually wanting to sell merchandise. Well, you're not going to be protected in merchandise if you accidentally selected restaurant services, even though you are a restaurant selling merchandise, because essentially what you are selling is clothing. You're selling the T-shirt. So you want to be protected in the t-shirt, in the clothing, not in restaurant services. And that's a very easy mistake for people to make when they have um, many components or many layers to their business. So that example I just gave with a restaurant that now wants to sell merchandise and maybe now they're going to provide uh, entertainment services it can become very confusing for people like that. Or there's the DIY applicant who really doesn't know much about the process and thinks, well, I'm just going to select whatever because it's not going to matter. Well, yes, it does matter. You need to be precise and clear about what it is that you want to protect and making sure that that category accurately reflects what you're going to be selling or what you are already selling. Yeah, I actually think it's because of this that, uh, a lot of people would actually need to consult a trademark lawyer mm-hmm. um, because I, I went through that process myself, mm-hmm. um, you know, because you can go on these websites and you can register yourself, but it's, it's knowing which categories to go into and which countries that you want to protect. That, that I mean, that it, it just felt like an absolute minefield. There's so many different numbers and so many different things in there. It's, it's, it's a lot to go through. So, um, you know, I, I've looked at trademarks and I have seen that, um, I was looking at the Manchester B recently because okay. I, I had a company that wanted to, to include that B within their logo and and I looked into it and our local council has it registered under like 10 different classes and I had to look into what each one of those were and it's like they pretty much covered everything from merchandise through to <laughs> yeah. using it on the yeah using it absolutely everywhere which is understandable yeah and so you know and then if you have a complicated industry like Let's say you have software as a service. Software as a service can also be identified as something very similar, which is, um, uh, it slips my mind right now, but there's something in a very different class that almost parallels software as a service exactly. So then you kind of ask yourself, well, which one should I choose? And it's like, well, you need somebody who has already been doing this and who has seen other applications, who has visited this issue before, 
to to like this second set of experienced eyes that's going to be able to help you more precisely identify which one is for you. Mm -hmm. So one big question I have is obviously once you have registered that name, what does that actually protect? I mean, does it just avoid people from using that exact same name or can you uh, can you stop people using something remotely similar? I mean, what does that actually do once you've got that registration? Yeah, so, you know, yes, you touched on part of it, which is that you preclude people from using the exact same name. So what's going to happen is, let's say, let's just say me, let's say I try and go and register Manchester B, even though you've already registered Manchester B. Well, chances are that I am going to receive what's called an office action from the USPTO. And they're going to say there's a likelihood of confusion because someone else, that someone else being you, has already registered it. So unless you can give us a really good explanation as to why yours deserves to be registered, chances are I'm not going to be able to move forward with my application anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then let's say my name isn't is not exactly Manchester B, but it's something similar to Manchester B. Let's say I've chosen, um, I don't know, Manchester B rocks mm-hmm. and um, or, or just like Manchester rocks, let's just say they might come back and issue the same type of response. A likelihood of confusion is exactly what I just said. It's a likelihood of confusion. It's not an actual confusion. So if there's a likelihood that a consumer might be confused um, about whether Manchester Rocks or Manchester B is associated with your Manchester B, then Mm -hmm. the trademark office can say, you know what, I don't like this. And so I'm issuing you a likelihood of confusion office action. And then it's going to be my job to basically explain why yours deserves to be registered. So, so that's why it's so important to choose something or to confer with an attorney from the get-go upon choosing your name about how confusing your name could potentially be in the marketplace. Um, and like I said, it doesn't have to mean that you're automatically going to move forward with a registration, but it does mean that at least you are checking out the weather for the day and making sure that the roads are clear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I guess the other thing is um, that example that you gave then is in the event that both of those people register that or try to register that. I know that there's businesses out there that might just start without bothering doing any trademark. In that case, if someone was to use that name that you registered or something remotely similar that could cause confusion, what can you actually do about it to stop them from using it? I mean, there are a couple of of things that you can do. You know, if you've already become aware that they're using it, um, Mm -hmm. then, of course, you can do things like amicably um, try to resolve it, like just saying, hey, I registered it before you. Um, Let's not make this complicated. You know, here's my date of first use. That's it. And sometimes that works. But there's other people who might be resistant and think, well, I don't really care. I'm just going to continue using it. I don't care who else has registered it. And then that's where you have the option to, you know, send a cease and desist letter. And then if they haven't stopped using it, then then that's where you can sue them. And so if you have obtained a registration from the USPTO, 
you can leverage the resources available to you, meaning you can sue them in federal court. And if you have not registered, then you'll have to resort to filing your lawsuit in state court where the damages are probably less. Yeah. And am I right that's only valid if uh, they are also promoting their business in the same category that you registered theirs for? So if they register in a, in a different category, would they be allowed to do that? So that's a great question. And everything kind of falls back to this confusion test I was talking about. Right. Earlier. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's not a clear black and white, like I registered in this category and they used in this category. So therefore I can automatically sue them. It's, it's, it's even if they didn't register in the same class that, that I'm registered in, how potentially confusing is this? For my target audience, for the people that that I'm trying to market to, are we traveling in the same channels and confusing these consumers? And if the answer to that is yes, then then you can have a claim. Yeah, okay. So those classes, as long as you covered the ones that you would use, it does kind of protect you for the for the other ones that you haven't registered for um kind of kind of yeah i mean right that's like a lawyer's best answer yeah situation based um but but yeah kind of i mean if it overlaps in some other trade channel where your consumers are then yes it could be potentially confusing so it all yeah, goes back yeah. to that is it potentially confusing for your customer and are we overlapping trade channels yeah i guess that you the only way to really be able to answer that question is from a case-to-case basis because it would depend on the situation totally yeah. understand yes um and i guess the last question i have for your naming as a graphic designer when i have a client um, approaching me, I often make the assumption that they've registered their name and they've done all of that work. But is there any way of like, without asking them, obviously, to double check that they have registered that name or they do have ownership of that name in some way? Is there like some database or something where I can check? Yes. So if you just do a Google search for USPTO, um, well, that's a little bit too general. If you want specific, I would type in, you know, USPTO TESS. And that basically right. stands for the the Trademark Electronic Search System. So that allows you to type in any business name, any slogan um, that you're thinking of using or that someone has tell, told you that they've already registered. And it will, give, it will populate a list of what's already been um, entered into their dat- database. So you can narrow it um, and filter it by different criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, that test is where you would go to do a search. Yeah, sure. And I understand that, well, I'm making an assumption here, but I assume that that covers just the United States? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so I, I assume that each com- each country sorry, would have um, the equivalent or something quite similar to that where people can go and search what that could be. Um, that is a great question. And I believe the Madrid, if you look up Madrid protocol on um, Google, and you look to their website, uh, there's got to be a universal um, way you can search or at least Mm -hmm. search by country. Um, But it would be your best bet would be to look under the Madrid protocol. Yeah, sure. Okay, so I'll link to that in the show notes so that people can have a look into that if they want to um, learn more about it. 
I just want to take a short break to thank FreshBooks who have sponsored this episode. As creatives, we like to spend our time designing logos and brand identities, but a lot of us spend more time than we'd like doing admin work, like creating invoices, chasing payments, logging expenses. And that's where FreshBooks can help you. It's an accounting software designed for creative professionals that will save you time. For example, you can create branded, professional-looking invoices in as little as 30 seconds. You can set up credit card payments right from those invoices too, meaning that your clients can pay faster. And when it comes around to tax time, you can export out tidy reports for expenses, invoice details, and sales tax to make working with an accountant really simple. Right now, I'm offering listeners of the Logo Geek podcast a free 30-day trial. To claim that, just head to freshbooks.com forward slash Logo Geek, making sure to enter Logo Geek in how did you hear about a section. Now let's get back to the interview. Okay, so I think we covered everything on the naming side of things. So how would you then go about registering the logo? Yeah, so you would just follow the exact same process as registering a business name. So you want to make sure that the the design you have is the one you're going to definitely be using moving forward without any changes or alterations. Um, And you fill out the application as you normally would accept that. Instead of choosing standard character mark, you're going to be choosing a stylized design for the logo. Right, right. So you're basically uploading an image and that's what they're using. Yes, that's right. Yeah, sure. Okay, so I guess from that, you mentioned, you know, that that one configuration is exactly what you should, what you should be using. That makes it sound complicated for me because when I design a logo, I do lots of configurations of it. So I might do uh, different layouts or different configurations so for example uh, there might be scenarios where there's an, uh, like a symbol to the left of a word mark or you might have a version with the symbol above or you might have like an inverted version so it can go on a darker background or uh, a white version a black version and stuff like that do you need to register all of these different variations So my best suggestion is that if you know that you're going to want to be changing the colors, that you should definitely just Mm -hmm. register your logo in black and white, because then that allows you to change colors moving forward and still remain protected in the design. Um, But when I was talking about materially altering it, I meant like um, changing the design and the look. Um, So Mm -hmm. that you should not do. But if everything else is going to remain the same, except for the colors, then my suggestion is to register in black and white from the get-go. Sure, that that makes sense. Uh, So I think it will be also worth discussing the symbols you can add to the uh, logo. So when would you use the TM symbol? Yeah, so the TM is basically a placeholder for when you do not have a registration yet. It could mean that you're just using it because you're testing it out, but nonetheless, you're claiming ownership over that design or name or whatever it is that you put the TM on. So it kind of puts people on notice, hey, I'm using this and it's not registered yet. So chances are if they put a TM on it, it's because of one of those reasons. Mm-hmm. So so in comparison, when should you use the, the R symbol? Could, could you use that on the uh, logo if you registered the company name or or do you need to have also registered the 
logo itself mm-hmm. because I, I've seen some uh, young designers include it on logos that haven't yet been presented to clients, mm-hmm. uh, let alone gone through that registration process. Yeah, so that's a really great question because I agree with you. I have seen it in many places, even where it is not merited. So you can only use the circle R, the registration symbol, on something mm-hmm. that has been registered. So if you have not registered the logo, then you cannot put a circle R on the logo. If you have not registered the name, you cannot put a circle R um, on the name. So if you've registered it, it, then if you've registered the name, let's be specific, then go ahead and use it on the name. And if you have not registered the logo and only the name, then you cannot put the circle R on the logo. So it can only be attached to something that's been registered. Yeah, sure. So if you've registered the name and you're writing a document and you're writing the, the the name of the company within there and that name has been registered in a document, can you use the R? Yeah, so you, I'm glad you asked because that is a <laughs> question. So, you, I mean, you don't always have to use the circle R, but if you're able to use it, then you should use it. And you should be yeah. using it more often than you're not using it. Because you need to put people on notice that this has been registered and there's a legal claim to it. So um, not using it kind of, you know, if you ever got to the situation where, God forbid, you're being sued or you're having to sue somebody, you know, they can always make the argument, well, they kind of didn't care for it. So it's kind of like taking your dog out for a walk in a populated area and then not taking it on its leash and then it, you know... What if it mm-hmm. bites somebody or what if your mm-hmm. dog gets harmed by somebody else's dog? Well, why was your <laughs> dog loose to begin with? You know what I mean? Like put that thing on a leash. Like you probably paid good money for it. You're invested in the dog. It's yours. You love it. It's kind of the same thing with a trademark. Like the way to keep it on its leash tight, letting the world be on notice that it is owned by somebody is to put that circle R there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I want to, to really put emphasis on that because I do see a lot of graphic designers it's generally the more uh, those with lesser experience that do this but I've, I have seen designers put the R symbol on their logo when it hasn't yet been registered mm-hmm. and um, yeah as you as you say you, you shouldn't be doing that I just wanted to make that differentiation clear that if you do have the name registered and you are writing about it you can use the R but the logo in order to use the R on the logo you have to register that logo separately in order to you know show that that has been registered that's right and um, I mean you mentioned it already but the TM pretty much anyone can use that TM that's correct right yeah anyone can use it and like I said it's like a placeholder to let people know that hey I'm going to continue to use this I am using it um, but they don't necessarily have the leverage that somebody who might have registered it would have sure um and we've we've gone through these two different things. So we've gone through registering a name and also registering a logo. How long do these things usually take to go through? Yeah, so it's kind of a lengthy process. It takes anywhere between 11 to 14 months. And I've heard other people say, well, so-and-so or I read or on YouTube, um, I saw that it's six months. And, you know, this is what I do like every single day, like trademark work is 
my line of my scope of work like every day and there is no way that it takes six months there's just it's it's not taking six months it's taking between 11 to 14 months that's a long time <laughs> yeah it is a long time and I, I guess you know so that we kind of covered all of the um you know register and the logo and everything once you've got that logo registered and I'm sure the name uh, your your answer with the name answer this but how do you go about protecting that logo once you have registered it um so the same way you would use the circle r if you notice that somebody else is using a similar design then you want to police your mark so you know i understand that not i mean you shouldn't go out and attack everybody that you think is maybe copying you i mean you kind of want to have um a good faith assertion that you really believe somebody else is trying to rip your logo or your design off and try to put a stop to it. Because if these cases keep coming up where, Oh, it looks like it's similar to mine. It looks like they copied mine because I'm really popular and I'm doing good in my industry. And you just let these people like get away with what they're doing. Then eventually you might get to a point where your mark is no, it loses its protection basically. So all that work and all that money that you invested into trying to protect your mark is essentially gone. So one very important thing to do is to protect it, police it, um, and, and do it diligently. You know, I mean, like I said, lots of, I mean, there are people that are like, I just need the registered trademark either because it's for Amazon or just because I want to hold that piece of paper to tell me it's registered. But if you don't do the policing afterward, I mean, you do run that chance of, that you might lose it if you don't do the right thing. Right. To so it's a case of, I guess, continuously monitoring what's happening out there. Yes. And in the event that you do see someone that's intentionally trying to rip you off, that's then obviously you need to take the appropriate action to protect um, that logo. Right. Right. Now we've gone through all of the naming and branding stuff. So um, another legal thing that I want to cover within this conversation is contracts. Um, every designer, I believe every designer or anyone that's offering um, a service where there's money exchanging hands, I believe that there should be a contract. Would you mind explaining a little bit for the people that I, I guess that aren't familiar with them or don't currently use them, why you would want to use a contract? So a contract is more so for the unexpected than it is for the expected. It's expected that you're going to get paid. It's expected that the work or the service that you're providing is going to be executed within a certain amount of time. Um, but it's really for the unexpected that you are preparing this document. So sure, we know you're going to deliver my service or my product, but how long is it going to take? What if it's uh, longer than I expect? It becomes an unexpected circumstance. You know, if I'm expecting something to be delivered in two weeks and now we're on day 45, then what do we do? Um, and so a contract should always cover those types of unexpected circumstances. Um, so you designate as, as many of the specifics as you can. How much am I getting paid? How long is this supposed to take? If there's a circumstance that you and I hadn't foreseen that would interfere with the delivery of the product or service, how do we handle that? Right now is a perfect time. The coronavirus, I'm sure it's interfering with a lot of contracts. Um, you know, that's kind of what you're preparing for. What if you're not satisfied when I deliver the services? Is this based on, um, 
Is the delivery of my product or service really based on personal satisfaction or is it based on more objective um, circumstances? Like, you know, we don't customize our product. It's a, it's a, the same product all across the board. Um, do you have a return policy? Do you have a refund policy? Uh, you know, those terms and those conditions are what allow you to have a solution before you enter into the argument, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So it's harder to find a solution to a problem once you're in the problem already. Whereas if you prepare for the solution beforehand, um, it might be a little bit of a smoother ride trying to mm -hmm. work through those mm -hmm. uh, hurdles. Yeah, I think you pointed out something um, quite important. I spend a lot of time in communities and you always see this designer that's like, I don't know what to do in this situation. This has happened, this has happened, this has happened. And they want help. And most people go, what's in your contract? And they're like, I don't have a contract. And it's in those cases where it's like, well, you know, there's, <laughs> there's no clear way out of this. There's, you know, you that person has no absolutely zero leverage to you know to kind of stand up and tell the client that it should be a, a specific way because you've you've I guess you've given away all of the bargaining chips you know like if if the customer wants their money back technically there's not a lot that you can do really in that situation so I think um why why I firmly believe that contracts are important is is to protect you and also to protect your client you know it's, it's a two-way thing and you know what happens when and I, I guess a, a, a question uh, for you would be you know in those cases where the client doesn't follow something that's agreed within that contract what can you do about it yeah so that is where you could you know here you could take it to small claims court you know if they're not abiding yeah. by a term in the contract then yeah I mean you can sue them it also depends on how large the contract is so for smaller contracts it would be small claims court for larger contracts you know you could potentially litigate it in um in state court and at the very least it's you know proving your point that what you outlined in the contract was what was supposed to be abided by but without those terms it's kind of like all up in the air mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know when you put something in writing in an email Mm -hmm. and and it's agreed does that act as a contract as well or do you actually need to have a proper formally written uh contract with all the terms and conditions and actually have it signed and dated or can something like an email yeah be used in in a court setting yeah so i mean you can if you don't have a contract and you have been exchanging emails and it's clear that you both have agreed to something then there has been a meeting of the minds which can be used in uh, in a court setting to say, hey, this is a term that we agree to. So although it's not necessarily going to be the outlining the contract in its entirety, it is considered a yeah. term or a condition of, you know, of the contract, um, which, yes, certainly can be used. Yeah, fantastic. So I, I think that gives a little bit of comfort to the to the people that are in those awkward situations where they haven't had a contract that if they do have some exchange of emails where there's been some kind of agreement as to um you know what happens when then technically that that does cover cover your back so i, I guess um one other questions with contracts how would people go about creating them because in the graphic design space there are templates out there so you can go on websites and and purchase them 
is that type of thing okay or would you advise to um actually get something written up properly for your business so uh, you know the the templates that are out there you know they might work for you but they might be leaving some things out so uh Kind of, kind of how we were talking about how it's a case by case basis, depending on what you sell, how you sell, um, and how, you know, everybody's business is different. Even though you're in the same industry, everybody's business can still be different. And so if you have a template that is generally for your industry, I would say just make sure that it covers everything that you are looking to cover your bases on. And if it doesn't, then my suggestion is if you, if you go and you fill out that template by yourself, then at least have an attorney look over it for you. Um, that way you're still saving the money, which I'm assuming is the reason you do a DIY template to begin yeah. with. Um, and that way you're saving some money on, you know, legal fees, but at least you've still had an attorney review it. Um, so, you know, I definitely offer that as a service is to review uh, contracts for graphic designers and for other freelancers. Uh, so you can also send it over to me. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's that's a perfect answer. Yeah, because I think, um, you know, one of the things that most people don't think of is all scenarios. So all those scenarios that you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, because a contract is only ever needed in the situation where something does go wrong. And mm-hmm. um, I, I guess because that's the type of thing that you're doing on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. you would be aware of things that would happen. You've seen what happens when something hasn't been put in there. And it's just a case of including all eventualities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and something I would say with a lot of the contracts out there, for me, I've seen loads, but most of them are for America only. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, being in the UK, we have different laws and, um, you know, there's listeners to this from all over the world. So, um, you know, just taking something from from the States, it might, I mean, it could cover everything and it probably will work for you. But just having um, someone double check over it just to make sure that everything is OK um, does make a lot of sense to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it, it'll save you some money, like I said, if that's what your ultimate goal is as well. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we covered everything that I wanted to speak about and we've pretty much gone through all of our time. That time seems to have flown by. <laughs> um, so Marcella, it's been really great to speak with you. I really appreciate you coming on and, um, you know, answering all of my questions and hopefully offering a lot of value to the audience. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. During these times, it's also nice to be able to indulge in something that will help your business moving forward yeah. and uh, try to carry you through these times. So at the very least, if if we can educate people about how to make their business stronger, then I'm always happy to do that. Yeah, fantastic. Well, it was really great. And I, th- I can imagine that there's listeners that probably listen to too much news. Um, I know I do. And a lot of conversations that I have are all around um, this coronavirus and everything like that, which is totally understandable. So mm-hmm. hopefully this um, interview was uh, um, a nice escape from that for um you know 45 minutes or so yes <laughs> so I, yeah <laughs> i hope so too <laughs> thanks marcella oh thank you if you enjoyed this episode and found it useful do let myself and marcella know by giving us a shout out on social media i always love to hear from you guys and i know that marcella will appreciate that too so if you enjoyed this episode 
let us both know. And if you want to learn more about Marcella, head to her website, marcellatm.com. Alternatively, check out the show notes for this episode where I'll link to Marcella's website, social profiles, um, as well as resources we mentioned in the podcast, as well as a full transcription too. So to find the show notes for this episode, head to logegeek.uk forward slash 78. Again, to find the show notes for this episode, head to logegeek.uk forward slash 78. So that is it for this week, but I will see you the same time next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek Podcast.